You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Didn't you coach Burt Reynolds? Yes, I did. Was he any good? He was a defensive back. I know. Was he any good? I said. 103.9 FM LI News Radio presents The Weekend Crunch with Errol Marks and Speedy Petey. Hello! And around the country, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Speedy Petey. What is going on, my friend? A little bit down when it comes to me being a Ranger fan. Well, well. <laughs> what are you trying to emulate the beef now? <laughs> oh, the Rangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, they do. Not good times as a Ranger fan, but excited for a couple of things, including this weekend, a particular birthday mm. that is occurring. Whoopee! In, in, in the next couple of weeks, I will be going on vacation. We'll be going to Maine with my family. We went in 2013. It was a lot of fun, and now we're looking to do even more things, and we'll be doing so in an RV, which mm. will be very interesting. How wonderful. You and your family in an RV for a week. I would be scared. But anyway. Anyways, we have a great show lined up for you guys tonight. We'll be talking to co-author of Incredible Baseball Stats, Ryan Spader. Has a book out. Well, actually, two books out. Fantastic personality. Looking forward to getting him on the show. There won't be any Moneyline Mania this week for all those betters out there. And last week, it wasn't so good for me. As Phoenix gets eliminated in the playoffs, I thought it wasn't going to be like that. But obviously, I was wrong. But who would have thought that Dallas was going to knock off the Phoenix Suns? Only a good better would do that. But anyways... (laughs) Anyone would have expected a blowout like that, though. We'll get into the Rangers and no quit on New York. All the Ranger fans out there that gave up on the New York Rangers all of a sudden came back with their own thoughts after coming back from a 3-1 deficit from the Pittsburgh Penguins. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, a third-string goaltender. We will get into that. We'll get into all the NHL series. We'll get into Max Scherzer could be out for six to eight weeks. Oh, my God, for the new York Mets. I told the Mets fans this could happen. As both their top dominant pitchers, Jacob DeGrom and now Max Scherzer, could be out a significant amount of time for the All-Star break as well. We will also get into some basketball. As the Miami Heat and the Celtics and the Golden State Warriors in Dallas are in the Eastern and Western Conference Finals, we'll go through each and every series and why we think both series could possibly go seven games. A Dallas team that includes Frank Nilakina, Reggie Bullock, and Tim Hardaway Jr. <laughs> Absolutely. We will get into some football. We'll get into some Jets and Giants offseason thoughts of where we think these teams could be as the season progressively comes closer. You have to look at some of the good things that we've seen for both of the teams. So and you were pretty impressed with the fashion swag of the Giants' new head coach and Brian Dable as well. Absolutely. Maybe they should hire Antoine Harris, the sneakerhead university on the coaching staff. I love Antoine Harris. Yeah. I didn't look at any of his stuff yet, and I haven't reached out to any of his friends with the shirts. But why don't we get into some hockey conversation? And before we get into the Rangers and throughout the NHL playoffs, I want to get into the New York Islanders and the New York Islanders in the middle of the week announce their new head coach, Lane Lambert. If you don't know who Lane Lambert is, he has been the assistant coach 
and part of the coaching staff of Barry Trotz for the last 10 years. Now, everybody's probably wondering, why would they drop Barry Trotz and bring in their assistant coach? Barry Trotz, over the last couple of years, especially this past year, he missed a few games. Lane Lambert took over as the head coach of the team, and he has not only helped the younger players develop better than Barry Trotz, but really, the Islanders have played sensational under Lane Lambert. They only lost one game under Lane Lambert out of the 10 games that he was the head coach this past year. But not only that, I think a lot of people are wondering why Lou Lamorello decided to go this route, bringing in a rookie coach, a guy that doesn't have any experience to a guy that's won a Stanley Cup, a guy that's taken the Islanders back-to-back Eastern Conference Finals, one goal away from knocking off the champion Tampa Bay Lightning and could have been the Stanley Cup champions last year against the Montreal Canadiens that had no business being in the finals. But I think when you look at the New York Islanders, I think the Islanders are a player or two away, and I think bringing in a new voice that can help the younger players develop, where the younger players actually trust a little bit better than the veteran coach. I think Lou Lamarilla wants to go that route. Lou has done this in New Jersey. He did it with Robinson. They parted ways with Lemire. I think when you look at what the Islanders are trying to do now in the next two or three years is really solidify themselves as a Stanley Cup contending team. Yeah, and I think as well, when you look at the relationships of a lot of these young players, that somebody that's coached a while like Barry Trotz, he's going to have his values that he's going to go through. Barry Trotz has been in this league for a very long time. He's only won one Stanley Cup. And you can't attack Lou Lamorello because he has won three Stanley Cups in New Jersey, and everywhere he's gone, he has helped those teams become successful. I'm not going to nitpick on records and playoff losses and stuff like that, because Barry Trotz, I think, did a very good job with Nashville. He did a very good job with the Islanders, and everybody chokes in the playoffs in Washington. So I'm not going to judge that against him, but then again, he's also won his only Stanley Cup in Washington. That being said, I think the relationship that they gained with those younger players was in that stretch when Barry Trotz was out. Gave the confidence, especially for the forwards, for a lot of those guys to really flourish. Guys like Wallstrom, guys like Kiefer Bellows played better in that stretch. And that might be what the Islanders are trying to get. Maybe they trust Barry Trotz's system in place to work enough to grow the defense the way they did, just transforming it from the third worst defense in hockey to the best defense in hockey in one year. And now all of a sudden it's been a steadily great defense. Now has an elite goaltender to go along with that in Ilya Sorokin, who played fantastic this year. So maybe they trust those concepts to be natural in keeping Lane Lambert there, keeping a lot of the assistant coaches there, and not changing the system too much. And now they're going to add some more offensive concepts to this team. Whether they add some offensive players, that'll be up to Lula Morello. We've heard Philip Forsberg. We've heard Vladimir Tarasenko. There's going to be other guys that have become available. But at least they can trust the defense, even with not the same system completely, to do those things naturally because of the way the players have grown, and now maybe Lambert will help the young offensive players take that next step like the Islanders have been hoping for for the last two years. Now let's get into the Stanley Cup playoffs, and nobody quits in New York. Hashtag no quit in New York. I have news for all you New York Ranger fans. All the Ranger fans that I know that quit on the Rangers when they were down 3-1, to one, despite the fact that they've been playing against a third-string goalie in Domingue this whole series. They come back, they go to a Game 7, and they win in Game 7. And by the way, Sidney Crosby, coming back like that, puts himself at harm, puts his team and the organization at harm. Terrible move by the organization and terrible move by Sidney Crosby, who's been the face of the NHL for so many years. But for all the Ranger fans that'll sit here every single day and tell us that they believed in this team, that they had no quit, they didn't believe that this team couldn't come back in that series. What a crock. Because I know about six of you Ranger fans that can sit here and lie to me to my face telling me that you thought that this team was good enough to come back in that series. What I have to say about the New York Rangers, they have grit. They have a coach that actually knows what he's doing. 
The question is, do they use their lines to the best of their ability? That's the question that only Gerard Gallant can answer. The best line so far in the playoffs has been their kid line. Lafreniere, Capococco, and their young centerman. There's so many deficiencies to this team. They have a young goaltender. I'm not going to blame Shesterkin for what happened throughout that series. Obviously, the defense fell and collapsed in front of him plenty of times in that series against Pittsburgh. So you can't blame him for everything. Was he good in that series? He was horrible. For Ranger fans to sit here because he's up for the Venzina Trophy, he's probably going to win Coley of the Year. He's up for the Hart Trophy. He's going to probably be runner-up for the MVP. For Ranger fans to sit here and say that Shesterkin was not to blame in that series, that's a crock, too. He's the last line of defense. That's what a goalie does. He's supposed to back up what the defense provides in front of him. But what I can say about the New York Rangers is they have grit. They believe in one another. And that's something that the Pittsburgh Penguins over the last couple of years have not believed in. And with Malkin probably on his way out, Latang probably on his way out, the only player that's going to be sitting in center ice is Mr. Concussion Man himself. And maybe if he protects himself and protects the organization, he might have a couple more years to play. When it comes to the Penguins, yeah, they've had these cap issues since they've won the Stanley Cup. So this is nothing new to them. And this might be the final straw. When it's it not comes- a might, it will be. Malkin's going to be gone. Latang battling through very well. I give him credit the way he's come back. He actually had a very nice season this year. All that he's gone through, off the ice, all the injuries, he went through some kind of treatment as well. So I give him credit. But yeah, the Penguins, it looks like they're going to have to look to start rebuilding. They don't have a lot of great young players because they traded a lot of Do them. Do you trade Sidney Crosby too? Yeah, that's the other question too. The new GM now that because the old GM made a lot of those bad mistakes, it's definitely possible that they could do that. Same thing, thing with Gensel, who's been dangled in years past as well, trying to help out their defense. Now their defense actually has a little more depth and their offense needs a little more depth. But in terms of the Rangers, their grit is there. Playing better defense in this series, much better forecheck. I don't think their defense has outplayed Carolina. Carolina's defense is loaded and it's showing with the forwards and with the defense and they've been the more physical team. But the Rangers have not allowed as many shots on goal. Granted, Carolina's missed some wide too and they haven't allowed as many grade A scoring chances. Now, the problem is they have offensively looked like Elaine Vigneault's offense again. Dump a chase, just keep passing around and not getting a lot of shots on goal against Antiranta. They haven't had the great A scoring any chances themselves, besides the only goal they scored in this series. The first goal of the series by Heedle. The Rangers kind of went to the reverse where they're overpassing where their last series they were overshooting. You can't. You have to find something in between. They need to find good scoring chances like they did in Game 7, like they moved around very well, and create space. The Hurricanes have speed, no question, but the Rangers have the speed to make that kind of thing work too, and they need to show that. I think the defense has played well. Shesterkin's played, I'm not going to say great, but good in this series. They need to wake up offensively. They might need to find some line combinations to get that going outside of the kid line. Down 2-0 against this team really puts you in a situation where if you go... Back to New York and lose one game. The series is over. I don't care if right. you came back from a 3-1 deficit. He came back from a 3-1 deficit with a third-string goalie. And right now, Ronta is not even their number one goalie. And Frederick yep. Anderson will be back soon. So the Rangers are not creeping up the right organization, not the right team. They were positioned very well, being that they could face Ronta. They've actually seen Ronta. He was a goalie for the New York Rangers. He was backing up Henrik Lundqvist for a couple of years. So they actually know who he is as a player, but I think this series is over. I can't see them coming back from a 2-0 deficit against this Carolina team. They could win Game 3. I'm not going to bet on it. I just don't think that this team is good enough to compete with a Carolina team that works so very well as a team. And they get good goaltending. They get good defense. They're very 
very well coached in Rob Brindamore. I, I've been very impressed with the Carolina Hurricanes. I think this is the year for the Carolina Hurricanes in the Eastern Conference. As far as the other two series, the Panthers knocking off the Capitals, not surprising, 4-2. to two, And Tampa knocking off the Toronto Maple Leafs, the JT Toronto Maple Leafs. That just can't get over the hump. They can't get out of the first round. JT's been there for a couple of years. He still can't get out of the first round. It's time to disassemble this team. This team is not good. They're not good together with Matthews there and Marner there and Tavares there and Nealander there. They need to decide what they're going to do moving forward. They're just not championship bound. As far as the Western Conference is concerned, not surprised that the Colorado Avalanche swept a very good young Nashville team, but a team that's rebuilding. St. Louis knocking off the Wild. I thought the Wild was going to give them a little bit more of a challenge. The number two seed who had a very good year this Mm -hmm. year. But St. Louis is a very well-built, oiled machine, very well coached by Craig Berube. Obviously, Bennington is showing you why he won a Stanley Cup a couple of years ago in Boston. Their series is tied one-to-one with the Avalanche. The Avalanche did not show up in game number two. Nope. I expect them to show up in game number three. Going back to St. Louis. Calgary knocking off Dallas. Went seven games. Calgary got all they can handle from Dallas. A veteran team that has played well all season long. Very impressive. And now Calgary and the Oilers. Oilers got lucky knocking off LA. Especially the way they fell behind three to two. But they won consecutive games. Knocked off an LA team that shouldn't have been there. Now you have a Calgary Oilers series that I think this series is over too. I think the Rangers and the Carolina series over. I had the Flames as the one blowout series of this. I really didn't trust the Oilers. Even once they won against LA, they really didn't prove a lot in that series. Whereas the Flames, I think they really proved their toughness. And then that series goes to the other extreme. They scored more goals in that game one than the Rangers and Hurricanes they're combined in their two games so far. And it seemed like for much of the Flames star series was too. So the Flames definitely proved a lot. I think they're going to be very tough out even if they do have to play a St. Louis or a Colorado team. Now, Colorado, they looked very undisciplined in game number two. I worry about them in terms of the goaltending that is still kind of questionable with them. Darcy Kemper had some bad goals in that game number two. Do they turn to their other goalie in Fransu, who's been a good young goalie? But the Blues have that grit. You're talking about with the Carolina Hurricanes. They have the experience. They have that grit, and they're very well coached. So I like them in the upset here with the with the Avalanche. Now, if Colorado does advance, that's going to be a tough out once they get there because the second round has always been their hindrance with them. But if they can get some level of goaltending, they could definitely pull it off. But the Blues have a good tandem, Biddington and Huso. Both have played well in the postseason. The Panthers, we'll see on them if they can turn it around. Down 2 nothing, losing both games at home and losing one with 3.8 seconds to go. That's something that could deflate a team. But if they could bounce back and blow them out, that's a big bounce back. As far as the Rangers, I hope they come back. But yeah, I don't really trust them right They're now. Over. Their lack of offense is really concerning, especially in the top and six. And I know a lot of people are going to say that I'm a Ranger hater, blah, 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 blah. I'm not a Ranger hater. I hate the Ranger fans. I don't like how the Ranger fans could sit here and tell me they honestly believe the Rangers are going to come back from a 3-1 deficit when they practically gave up on them. And now all of a sudden that they're there, nobody quits on New York. Give me a break. New York Ranger fans need to stand up for their team no matter 3-1, 3-0. They could be down 3-0 by Sunday. And to come back from a 3-0 deficit, everybody's like, well, we came back from a 3-1 deficit. You came back from a 3-1 deficit from a backup, backup goalie. That's a third-string goaltender that shouldn't even be in the NHL, honestly. Yeah, not a very deep roster in the Penguins either. The Hurricanes are a much deeper roster and have some good veteran experience too, and have a bunch of ex-Rangers. Naturally, Brendan Smith had to freaking score on the Rangers. Yeah. Guys that know your identity. Not Gallant's identity, not all the young players, but a lot of the Rangers that are currently on the team. So, much different than the Penguins. So, good luck coming back. I think they'll win game three, but I would not expect much more after that. They might lose in five, they might lose in six, but if they don't turn this offense around they're going to have a lot of trouble. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we'll get into some basketball conversation. Celtics, Heat, Dallas, Golden State. 
when we come back here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Mark. My co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time. All eight on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network. Brought to you by New York Sports Scene Magazine and the world's wide sports radio network. Download the Worldwide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, which is Apple, WWSRN, or Android. Search Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I want to get into the NBA playoffs. And, and to me, what we have seen so far in such a very early NBA Western and Eastern Conference Finals is a dynamic force in the Eastern Conference. And I think when you look at Miami and look at Boston, these are two teams that are very connected in so many different ways. And you look at Miami, which has been a championship pedigree team ever since Pat Riley has taken over this team and really rebuilt the forces of LeBron James, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade. So when they brought in Jimmy Butler and they brought in all these different players to band together to eventually take on these Eastern Conference powerhouses, and not many of them, that's for sure. The Boston Celtics, in the last couple of years, had to figure out how they could compete with a team like the Miami Heat. And going into this series, you look at the defensive side of the ball and the offensive side of the ball, and both teams very good on both sides. But going into this series... You would question who had the upper hand. And in game number one, Miami came out strong. Hit shots. Couldn't miss the three-point shot. And were very dynamic defensively, especially in the second half. Keeping Jalen Brown and Tatum off the offensive games that they have had in this whole NBA playoffs. But not only that, when you compare the coaches, you, you look at a rookie coach with Boston and a coach that's been there with Miami for over 10 years, a very dynamic coach, a championship pedigree coach. You look at this series and you would think Miami had the advantage. But throughout the playoffs, when Boston has been healthy, they have been as dynamic defensively as any team we've seen in a very long time. So going into this series, a lot of people are trying to figure out who has the edge, who's the better team. And you look at the rosters and Miami has Tyler Hero, who's the sixth man of the year. Jimmy Butler, who's one of the best defensive, more underrated defensive perimeter players in the NBA. Victor Olandipo is finally healthy. Bam Adebayo, sensational big man defender. I would compare him to Draymond Green, just a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. But this series, we expect to be neck and neck. And in game number one, like I was saying, Miami took advantage of everything Boston couldn't do. Maybe it was because Marcus Smart wasn't playing in the game or Williams or Al Horford wasn't playing in the game. But they completely dominated. And yes, Boston made a run in the fourth quarter, brought it back to an eight-point lead and couldn't get over the hump. Game number two, this was a different Boston team. You have Marcus Smart, Al Horford, both Williams playing in the game. You saw what Boston could do defensively against a dynamic offense like the Miami Heat. Miami, it always has come down to what team offense they can get because the depth is there for Miami. We haven't even seen the best of guys like Duncan Robinson yet, Caleb Martin, who had a nice year in the regular season, and some of these 
other role players that haven't gotten the big minutes. Jimmy Butler scored almost half of Miami's points. Now, they distributed the ball well. They balanced it out well. But when guys like Oladipo were off like they were in game number two, where they weren't the same, just 14 points, then you'd take away that second level, the star factor. The Celtics have the stars Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, the question with them was always the depth. Now, their depth has played phenomenal throughout the year, but it's not like the same level as Miami's depth, especially if they have all those injuries. But now, once they got that depth back and they got them balanced again, it showed what a team the Celtics could be. Al Horford came back with 10 points and defense that was very good. Peyton Pritchard off the bench, Grant Williams, and Marcus Smart's offense was a huge reason for game two. 24 points near triple-double. The Celtics have that kind of depth. If they can outplay Miami's depth like they did in this game, that's a big, big boost for them. If you can get the points from Marcus Smart, 30 to 25 points, Boston is going to be unstoppable in this series. If you're getting Jason Tatum numbers between 23 and 27 points, Jalen Brown numbers between 18 and 21, and then you're getting... Marcus Smart, who's not a real offensive player. He's obviously the defensive player of the year. And you're getting something between 20 and 25 points a game from him. I think Boston's going to be very unstoppable because of their defensive type of game that they produce and why they're so dynamic is the way they play defense. Ever since they brought Derek White at the trade deadline, this team has just completely been a defensive prowess team. They're getting so much defense from so many different parts of the court, not only through the front three with Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart and obviously Jalen Brown, but they're getting it from the perimeter. And that, to me, makes them so witty and so dangerous. Marcus Smart could defend five positions. We've seen him defend the five. We've seen him defend the four, the three, the two, and the one. So Marcus Smart, you can move him around on the perimeter and play his game as dynamic as he could be in every type of way. So going into this series, I expected Boston to be that strong defensive team, but I didn't think they were going to be that defensively dynamic in the second game as well as what they did to the Miami Heat in the fourth quarter of game number two. So I was very surprised. I've been very impressed with the Celtics defense throughout the playoffs and the regular season. This is one of the best defenses I've seen in a very long time. I'm talking about 10, 15 years. I remember those Bulls teams in the 90s and how very good defensively they were with Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, and Michael Jordan. These guys were all top-end defensive players. And I wouldn't say Jason Tatum and obviously Jalen Brown or anywhere close to Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. But Marcus Smart, what he has done so far as a defensive player, a person that I didn't think was as dynamic as the league thought he was in the middle of the season. I didn't know he was going to be the defensive player of the year. But when you look at the numbers and you look at the quality defensive game that he has on all different sides from the one and the two as a guard and then even playing and defending the three and the four and sometimes the five, it is an amazing feat on what this Boston defense has really produced throughout the season. Udoka, as a coach, too, has definitely implemented it to the younger players, too, because Tatum throughout his career was probably an improved defender year to year, but was never thought of as a great one. And then Jalen Brown, he was drafted for his defense, and it showed it to an even higher level. Now Marcus Smart, now defensive player of the year, but even some of the bench players. Miami's depth hasn't been the same in this series because of that. And Eric Spolster's the better coach, so he'll, he'll adjust. He'll find a way. He's coaching with this defensive scheme and the way he Riley is drafted have really fit to what they're trying to do. So I expect some kind of different 
looks. I expect Duncan Robinson, guys like him to play more. So it'll be up to Adoka to make those kinds of adjustments there. But the Celtics depth is outplaying Miami, and that's a big difference when it comes to one seed versus the two seed roster level. You saw Dallas do it against Phoenix. That might be the avenue for the Celtics against Miami. Speaking of Dallas, a team that I expected to put a lot of pressure on this Warriors team going into the Western Conference Finals, and a team like the Warriors who really had problems against Memphis until they took John Morant out of that series. I thought Dallas was going to give this team a run for their money. But in game number one, we saw a complete domination, especially against Luka Doncic. And and something that Phoenix couldn't do throughout the semifinals of the Western Conference and shutting down Luka Doncic, that was something that I believe Golden State and Steve Kerr wanted to do was shut down their superstar, and boy, oh boy, did they do that, especially in the second half of the game. Luka Doncic could not hit the shots that he hit throughout the series against Phoenix, and that gave a more dynamic offensive team like the Golden State Warriors opportunities to score in so many different ways, not only from Jordan Poole, not only from Steph Curry or Klay Thompson, but even some of the bench players. So this series, if this continues going the way it did in game number one, I don't think Dallas has any chance of beating Golden State. The Mavericks, I was mentioning the depth earlier with with the Suns, they needed that depth to show up there. It didn't show up in this game, and Luka Doncic didn't have his usual 30-point performance and making all these insane three-pointers that he did in game one. Golden State definitely showed the other end of that too, where they had seven different guys in double figures, and I was worried about their depth coming in because they really weren't showing it throughout the playoffs. If Memphis had a healthy John Morant, I think they win that series because they win a couple of those close games. Now, granted, they lost game one with John Morant, but still, Golden State really hasn't been the complete all-around team that the Celtics have been in the heat, and Dallas looked like they were showing flashes of that, so if the Warriors could play like this, yeah, this is going to be over quickly, but this is also the typical letdown game. You saw the Dallas Mavericks, the boy, they blew out Phoenix in game number seven. Inevitably, you're not going to play like that again. I'm not too worried about them yet. Luka Doncic, yeah, a little off. I think he'll make his adjustments. The Warriors' defense isn't menacing that I'm worried about they're going to be able to do this game to game. And I do think Dallas' depth, if it can play as well as it did against Phoenix, should be able to at least play consistently well. So I will not count them out just yet. I believe that what we saw in game number two wasn't something hidden for what we know what Luka Doncic is. Luka Doncic had a better game number two, played sensational. And really, when you look at Golden State in this specific series, you need to shut down the superstar player for the Dallas Mavericks. And we saw throughout this series against Phoenix, guys really stood up. Jalen Brunson, he played very well. Other semi-star players like Tim Hardaway Jr. I say semi-star because Tim Hardaway has glances of being a star in this league. He's not his father, Tim Hardaway, but which, no. by the way, signed a contract with the New York Knicks. He's a new scout for the New York oh, Knicks. Wow. So congratulations to Tim Hardaway. Now he's working with the New York Knicks. I'm not surprised. Maybe that's why all those Knicks were at the Dallas game. Now it all makes sense. I don't all know. full circle. Tim Hardaway Sr., who is a Hall of Famer, is now working for the New York Knicks. Going back to this series, I expect the Golden State Warriors to play even more deeper in their roster because they have so much depth. And I know you say they're a three-player team. I, the I way they've been playing in the playoffs. Yeah, I disagree. I think this team has a tremendous amount of talent on and off their bench. Now, I look at their roster. You look at Wiggins. You look at Steph. You look at, obviously, Jordan Poole. You look at Klay Thompson. You look at Draymond Green. That's five players right there that you could start in any rotation and be a superstar rotation. Gary Payton's the second. Gary Payton Jr. This is a kid that has played well in the playoffs. That 
obviously got hurt, and I guess you could say sucker punched. Slap on the head, but then it landed on his elbow, too. So it was a double whammy for him. But a kid that a lot of people thought was not any good. He was a second-round draft pick. Obviously not the same player his father was. Right. But he's been a dynamic player throughout the players. Andre Iguodala, they brought him back, a defensive type of player who's a good leader, especially on and off the bench. Another guy that will play a big part if they move forward in the playoffs, especially in the Western Conference Finals. Otto Porter, who hasn't had a very good playoff, but another guy who has been dynamic throughout his career. So this is a very good, more depth type of bench we've seen the Golden State Warriors have over the years. So I really believe that the Golden State Warriors have everything and every type of piece to take this team all the way to the finals and win another championship. The question is, is Steph Curry the same Steph Curry? Is Klay Thompson 100% healthy? And is Jordan Poole the real deal? That only Golden State can answer. And they have to stop Luka Doncic because this guy, if he scores 40 points in a game, there's a very good chance that that Dallas Maverick team is going to pull away and win that series if he does. I also look at the size, too, because Dallas's size was a big reason they were able to do well against Phoenix inside as well. Guys like Dwight Powell, Dorian Finney-Smith, Max Kleber, more of an offensive forward, but still good size, too. Being that Golden State doesn't have Wiseman, Kavon Looney's a solid center, but nothing special. Then your next big guy is who? Draymond Green, who's a great defensive player, but still kind of undersized, though, too. So if Dallas could get that kind of advantage back, too, they could definitely help out Luka Doncic and not make him the center of attention all the time where he's going to be getting double teamed, triple teamed by these defensive players. Also, Klay Thompson, his defense, will they be able to find that again? That was the biggest thing I worried about off of his injury too, because Wiggins is a very good defender, and Poole's a pretty serviceable defender. He's not great, but if they can get some level of that back, that's going to be a big step forward for Golden State in this series and if they do win this series in the NBA Finals. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, our special guest, and we're going to get into some baseball and Boy, oh boy, why not get a guy that knows what he's talking about and how baseball doesn't really like him. So we'll get him (laughs) on. We love him. We will be talking to co-author of Incredible Baseball Stats, Ryan Spader, here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network. Brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, which is Apple, ladies and gentlemen. How many times do I have to tell you? WWSRN is the search key. Or go to Android and search us at World Wide Sports Radio Network. Well, well, well. Well, baseball doesn't like this guy. Like I said, we love him. And why not introduce him as somebody we respect? And he's very, very talented. As he has a book out, he has had two books out uh, for the last couple of years. Check him out. It's incredible baseball stats. And our special guest is the co-author of it. Yes, Ryan Spader. What's going on, Ryan? Hey, what's going on, guys? I really appreciate you having me on. We're very happy to have you on. I never got a chance to read your book. It's interesting. With baseball and these new stats, war and all this crazy stuff, it's really changed the game. And now it's really changed the way baseball is played with power and average and then shifting, which, thank God, is going to be gone now. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to get involved with a book like this. And when you started writing, what was the back end of all this working with your counterpart? 
Oh man, dude, this goes way back to when I was at Penn State. Even before I was at Penn State, I realized, dude, you're probably not going to be a big league ball player. And <laughs> it really sunk in even harder when I was at Penn State and I got cut from the club baseball team. And I was like, damn, I got to figure out a way I'm going to be involved with the game in some other way because it's not going to be playing. I've got to accept that. I had a professor, Daniel Goldstein at Penn State, and he was a stat and economics professor. And he would always use baseball in his examples. And I was good at this stuff. And I'm like, dude, this is it. I can figure this stuff out by the numbers. It took me a little while to figure out exactly how that would be, but it was 2012 when Cliff Lee went six and nine and everybody's losing their mind in Philadelphia as Philadelphia fans are known to do. Everybody's <laughs> losing their mind because Cliff Lee's finished. He's done. But I'm looking at these numbers and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. He just didn't get any run support. So I'm trying to figure out how can I show these guys that Cliff Lee actually had a great season. And finally, I come across it. I'm like, Cliff Lee, he actually becomes the first player with 200 strikeouts and 30 or fewer walks in a season, 2012, since Cy Young in 1905. Wow. And I'm like, dude, this is money. So I start calling into all the Philadelphia radio stations, sports radio stations that I listen to, and start trying to talk these numbers with them. And as soon as you start talking numbers Mm. as a caller – They tend to hang up on you, as Mm. I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. And so I kept getting hung up on it. And I'm finally like, you know what? I got to figure out how I'm going to disseminate this stuff. I started a Twitter to do it. Now, the irony is today I do regular spots on those same Philadelphia radio shows (laughs) that I was getting kicked off. But through all this stuff, I started to Twitter. And then eventually I started doing some freelance work for some other writers. Eventually NBC Sports reaches out to me and they're like, hey, we'd love to have you write for us. And I was like, hey, no, I'm not a writer. I'm not doing that stuff. They're like, look, the numbers you put out there, I think it'd be important for you to start having your own byline. And I'm like, I don't really care what you think. I'm not doing it. I'm going to make a jackass out of myself by doing that. (laughs) Finally, they convinced me. They're like, look, we got editors. They'll open up their veins all over your work and they'll make you look great. And I'm like, all right, that's, you know, I'll give it a shot. Wrote a piece on Mike Trout. Now keep in mind, this is about five years into the thing. Wrote a piece on Mike Trout and I got 65 bucks for it. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I'm like, (laughs) you're getting paid to talk about baseball now. You're a big shot, right? And then eventually I only wrote two or three articles for NBC (laughs) Sports and Sporting News picked me up and they were like, oh, We'd love to have you do some stuff for sporting news. And then eventually I got picked up by the Buffalo News. And that's an entire another story because I covered the Bills as a beat writer for them for a year. I didn't care about the Bills. I was in the Marine Corps at the time and they're paying me more than I was making in the Marines. And I was like, yeah, this is great. So the book, I got to the point where I was like, you're not a terrible writer, I guess. And you got all the numbers. You've got a huge index of tons and tons of stats that other people hadn't come up with before. Why don't we put it in a book? And I had a friend whose buddy had written a book and I asked him to introduce me. We eventually got together having a couple beers, which ended up being 12 or 13. (laughs) Philadelphia people are one to do. We're just talking baseball stats all night. He's blown away and he was a pretty talented writer. So he was like, I love your idea and I understand if you want to do it solo, but I'd love to be a part of this if you're cool with it. And I'm like, yeah, why not? You know, more the merrier. So Kevin Reeves, and I did this thing together. We wrote the first one, had it forwarded by Wade Boggs, an entire another story. Mm. And then we ended up doing a second one together and we had it forwarded again by Boggs and then also Lance McCullers Jr. We got Rock Reigns involved, Larry Walker involved, wow. Edgar Martinez, Brian Kenny. We had a lot of people involved. It was a really cool project and probably something we'll continue to do every few years. What are some of those stats that are in those books that you've researched, both either historical or even just with current players that a lot of people wouldn't expect? Like if they read it, they would be blown away by that kind of thing. It depends the way that you're looking at it. So you get a lot of things like to start a career, first hundred games, who 
reach base in the most in their first hundred games. And you get a name like Logan Morrison and people are yeah. like, what? You got Logan Morrison up there with Ted Williams and stuff. It just shows guys can come out to a really hot start in their career. My personal favorite, Wade Bonds, who I really only remember the end of his career. I looked at his batting stance and it was real similar to the batting stance of my old man who I'd been watching play baseball and then eventually um, softball when I was a kid. I watched Wade Boggs hit. I looked at this guy in Marvel. And so I look up his numbers. He had a season, 1985, where he reached base in more games than any other player in a season Hmm. in history. And he only failed to reach base in, I believe it was six games that season. And in three of those games, he had reached on error, which should count, had an RBI or had like a a productive out in some other way. And then of course you get the stats that everybody loves. The fact that Tony Gwynn could go, oh, for 1,171 and still have a lifetime batting average of 300. Barry Bonds once had 80 home runs over the span of 160 games. That's one of my famous stats because I did it on karaoke one time and it blew up (laughs) because Barstool got their hands on it and everybody was attacking me because I'm the bad stats man who ruined karaoke. I thought it was hilarious personally. (laughs) But you go in there and it's just telling stories by the numbers. I go back to Wade Boggs and one of my favorite things that I've done is I went to the Hall of Fame for the first time when Tim Raines got inducted. He was kind enough to invite me to his induction. I've since been invited to a couple of them. Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker. These guys who just appreciate the campaigns that I'll run by the numbers for them because I believe they belong in the Hall of Fame. But Wade Boggs, of course, he's been in the Hall of Fame for a long time. First ballot Hall of Famer. I go to his plaque and I'm reading through it and I'm like, something ain't right here. And it said that Wade Boggs had reached base safely in 80% of his games played. And I'm doing some quick math. Wade Boggs played 2,440 games in his career. This means he failed to reach base in 488 wrong. There's no way that's true. Sure enough, I figured out that Wade Boggs actually reached base in 85.2% of his career games played. Wow. And that 5.2% of games played represents 123 games that the Baseball Hall of Fame is egregiously leaving off of his plaque. That's a season, man. So I wrote the Hall of Fame a really long email about why it was incorrect and how they should correct it. And it took them months, but eventually they got back to me and it was just a picture of how they updated the plaque and thanking me for the effort that I, I had made in finding the Look error. Look at you, man. Changing yeah, everything. You know, Changing lives. Stuff, Changing love the, love the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking to co-author of Incredible Baseball Stats, Ryan Spader. We look at all these stats, Ryan. Everything in sports has to do with stats. In basketball, they're trying to compare everybody to Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player ever. But if you look at stats, LeBron James is the greatest basketball player ever. But Michael Jordan was a completely different player, was a different game when Michael Jordan was playing. So you can't compare and contrast the game, what it was in the 80s and the 90s, into what it is today. You can't even put your fingers on them before you go into the foul line. But what are your thoughts of the game now? When you look at all these different statistics that they brought into the game, the wars, everybody's trying Trying to compare defense to offense, and everybody talks about Mike Trout. This is why Mike Trout's the greatest baseball player in the game. Does this surprise you on the different statistics that they brought into the game ever since Moneyball really came into the game? I'm going to say something that oftentimes when I tell people this, it surprises them. I do appreciate 
baseball by the numbers. I appreciate analytics a great deal. I think there's a great place in baseball for analytics. However, that's not what's playing the game. We don't play baseball on a spreadsheet. We don't play baseball with Python. We play baseball on a field. And I think the best example of this, of analytics as a failure, where you have to also go with the eye test, you have to use gut instinct from time to time, is Gabe Kapler. Gabe Kapler, as a manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, was using just the spreadsheet, just the Python code, just the infographics, heat maps. That was it. And he failed. He fell flat on his face. Now, fortunately for him, the Giants gave him a chance. Fortunately for him as well is he's not a stubborn fool. He learned from his mistakes. Now, he still implements the analytical side and still preaches analytics to his players and uses his analytics team. However, he has since learned that, hey, sometimes you bring in a lefty to face two lefties or three lefties, and he strikes out maybe three guys on 10 pitches, and then you got a righty up. Maybe this guy just has good stuff tonight, and maybe we should stick with him. Because sometimes, even though the numbers say something else, what the eyes see is what is real at that moment. And sometimes a guy just has stuff, and it doesn't matter who's up there. Mike Trout doesn't matter. He's up there, and he's going to have his best stuff. And sometimes you just got to ride with the guy who has his best stuff on a particular night. So you actually had a lot of different articles on the Hall of Fame. A lot of the players that you think should get in, especially underrated ones, including Jimmy Rollins was one, Scott Rowland. Go through some of those underrated players that you think deserve it and some of the data that you used in those kinds of instances. Jimmy Rollins was especially a very interesting one over Omar Vizquel. <laughs> so it's funny you bring up Omar. I've actually caught some heat, especially from some of your BBWAA members, mm. which I'm not allowed to be in that club. I've been never officially denied membership because I qualify for it so they won't officially deny it but they don't like me so I'm not allowed to be in the club and the heat that I've caught is well what are you doing preaching Tim Raines Hall of Fame case did you even see him play most of his career and one guy even said to me you served in the United States Marine Corps and Tim Raines played the majority of his career in Canada how the hell can you advocate for him as a Hall of Famer and I'm like this stuff is ridiculous I believe in baseball history and I think that the Hall of Fame is a baseball history museum. So I want really good baseball history in it. And I look at Tim Raines. The thing that I often get from people about that one is he was an exposed player. The reason I like Tim Raines, and I only saw the tail end of his career, is again because my father. My father watched him wreak havoc on the base paths against the Phillies and others in the 80s. Preached the way that Tim Raines played the game. You know, he got that nickname Rock because of how hard he played the game. That's the way that I was taught how to play the game, was the way that Tim Raines played the game. A uh, cool thing to mention on that is the first time I ever spoke with Tim Raines, when I wrote one of those articles, I said to him, hey, Rock, I only saw the tail end of your career. I get to call him Rock now because we're boys after one conversation. <laughs> we spoke for a good hour and a half, but I get to call him Rock. So I'm like, Rock, my father is the one who actually saw all your career, and he told me about how you played the game and preached that's how you're supposed to play the game. You mind saying, Saying hello to my dad. And he was like, sure, Ryan, I'd love to talk to your dad. He talked to my father longer than he talked to me. And he just got <laughs> off the phone with me for an hour and a half. Anyway, though, I look at the game by the numbers in hindsight. For Tim Raines, for example, what kept him out of the Hall of Fame was Ricky Henderson. He was second to Ricky Henderson for his career. To me, I look at this like there's no shame. There's no crime in not being the greatest of all time. We don't say you can't be in the Hall of Fame if you don't have the numbers like Babe Ruth and Ted Williams and Willie Mays, and that's it. Those are the only guys who are going to be in. There's a standard that you must meet, and the standard is not 
the single greatest of all time. It's maybe the top one and a half, top 2% players ever. And that is what Tim Raines was. And then we go to somebody like Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez was kept out of the Hall of Fame because he was a catastrophe, now, by that, the way. Absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. Now, he was a designated hitter for how does, 70%. I'm sorry. How does David Ortiz go to the Hall of Fame over Edgar Martinez? Edgar Martinez has been the best DH in baseball history since the DH even came into the game. And David Ortiz, who, by the way, did steroids and has been proven to do steroids, still gets in as a first ballot. And Edgar Martinez waited years. He was a first ballot Hall of Famer, hands down the best DH we've ever seen. The fact that he never got in as a first ballot is a catastrophe. I agree. Yeah, there you go. A little flex action, I see. Maybe uh-huh. Big Poppy. No. You know, <laughs> no. Big Poppy. No, but yeah, Edgar absolutely belonged, and I think the fact that he waited was simply for the fact that there was going to be a delay on allowing designated hitter to actually get in, which is complete BS, because we let closers into the Hall of Fame, and these guys, mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Like, you look at Trevor Hoffman. I was just example. about to say Trevor Mar- Hoffman. I, I don't want to talk smack on Mariano Rivera with that <laughs> accent of yours. We go Trevor Hoffman, and you look at his career numbers. Brandon Webb, as a starter, pitched more innings and was a better pitcher overall. Right. But nobody's saying Brandon Webb belongs in a Hall of Fame. Mm. You probably could have thrown Brandon Webb out there in the ninth inning 700 times, and he probably would have been pretty freaking good. The fact of the matter is most relievers – even the great Mariano Rivera are failed starters. Mariano Rivera didn't hack it as a starter. Fortunately, he figured out that cutter, and he became the greatest. I hate the term closer. I don't believe in closers. He became the greatest relief pitcher of all time. But the fact remains true is these positions, these things that BBWAA, they really hold the keys to the gate. It's aggravating to me. But the things that they don't really understand, they tend to overvalue to try to get ahead of the curve. They did this in the 80s when they were handing out Cy Youngs and MVPs even to Raleigh Fingers, to <laughs> Willie Hernandez, all these relief pitchers winning these awards. Why? Because they led the league in saves and you don't understand it. So that's really cool. And then up until this year when Omar Vizquel had that controversy and stuff, they're going to vote him into the Hall of Fame. Why? Because he was a great defensive shortstop. Yeah, he was one of the greatest all-time defensive shortstops. But when you look at the numbers, in the example of Jimmy Rollins, there's a law of diminishing marginal returns. When you go from great shortstop defensively to all-time great, you are not adding that much value. It's not the same amount of value that you're adding when you go from average fielding to great fielding, going from great fielding to all-time great. There's only so much value you can possibly add. And the fact is, when you look at Omar Vizquel and Jimmy Rollins, Omar was slightly better on defense. Jimmy was a great defender. Omar sucked at offense. And Jimmy Rollins had an offensive stretch there that led him to an MVP award. He's one of the better offensive shortstops of a generation. And nobody's going to say he belongs in the Hall of Fame. I even went on to say Placido Polanco is more deserving of the Hall of Fame than Omar Vizquel. you got to be kidding me, Omar Vizquel, as a Hall of Famer. It's a disgrace, and I really wish he didn't have that controversy, first of all, because it's really messed up what he's accused of doing. But let accusations go, and we'll see what happens. But I really wish none of that happened, because I would love for BBWAA to make a mistake again so I can call him out on it. Because I love doing that. They made a mistake uh, with Lee Smith too. Simply because they didn't understand. They don't understand the value of defense. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. And anybody who says they understand the value of defense is lying. Every single year, the formula for defensive runs saved and runs from fielding. And
and UZR and defensive war. Every single year, the formulas change as we begin to learn more and more, and they will continue to change. Even wins above replacement. You go to Barry Bond's page this year and go into that Time Machine website. He has a different war now than he did five years ago. How is that possible he hasn't been playing? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's because the formulas change and we don't fully understand this stuff. And at least I'm willing to admit, we don't really completely understand this stuff yet. So maybe we got to apply it at face value sometimes. You look at Barry Bonds, you look at Roger Clemens, you look at Alex Rodriguez. They were accused of doing steroids. Barry Bonds, before he even did steroids, was a Hall of Famer. 400 and 400. 400 home runs, 400 stolen bases. Before he even looked like he was sticking himself in the ass. Roger Clemens, before he left the Boston Red Sox, was a Hall of Famer. And even Alex Rodriguez, before this whole thing came out in Texas, he was on his way to be a Hall of Famer. Do you think Barry Bonds is being held up by the major leagues and Roger Clemens being held up by the major leagues because of this steroid thing is right for what they're doing? Or do you believe that they should be in the Hall of Fame and they should just have an asterisk on their name because they did steroids? No, it's a catastrophe. Throw away the asterisk talk because these guys did nothing wrong. Major League Baseball is the only one who's at fault here. Major League Baseball, time and time again, skirts all responsibility. This is another reason why I'm hated by BWAA because I always call out Major League Baseball. 1985 Pittsburgh drug trials with all the guys using cocaine. Major League Baseball said, hey, we're not responsible for any of this. Look, there's a trial on it. And then you go to the steroid controversy. Well, Major League Baseball didn't want to test for anything. They didn't put anything in the collective bargaining agreement about testing. So what did guys do? Oh, well, they used the things that Major League Baseball, they didn't say you could use, but they didn't say you couldn't not (laughs) use them, right? So it's a complete disaster when you look at the thing as a whole, it continues till today. It's really aggravating to me because the whole thing with the Astros cheating scandal and the whole thing blew up with the New York Post because I had to apologize because lawyers came after me about how I came out with all the other information I knew about other teams cheating. They did. And everybody knows it. And then the baseball, the Major League Baseball purchased Rawlings and suddenly the baseball all of a sudden starts flying. And now this season, all of a sudden the baseball's dead. And guess what's going to happen here in a couple of weeks? It's going to start flying again. I guarantee it. Start betting the overs, boys. I'm telling you, Major League Baseball is at fault for everything and they constantly skirt any and all responsibility. Manfred has been at the forefront oh, of God. the steroid controversy. But Bud Seeley gets blamed for that. It's also his fault. But Manfred was at the forefront of that. So was Senator George Mitchell, who nobody seems to talk about anymore. But that Mitchell report comes from a guy who's been accused of going to Epstein Island like eight times. And uh, all of a sudden, we're not talking about this guy anymore because he's probably a pretty bad dude. But let that slide. Then also the fact that the Mitchell report didn't name a single player on the Red Sox. Guess what team George Mitchell happened to work for? That throws out any value of that report because he's clearly picking and choosing who he wants to finger in this thing. It's just a disaster when Major League Baseball enabled it and then says, Mark McGuire, you're not getting the Hall of Fame. Mark McGuire deserves a damn statue outside of that Hall of Fame. I don't care about the plaque. Give him a statue because he saved baseball. Oftentimes when I say that, people bring up Sammy Sosa. Sosa wasn't a part of that home run race until June 1998. And that was the most exciting thing I've ever seen in baseball. But Mark McGuire was chasing that record at 95, 96, 97. And he was bound to get there. And he did. And Major League Baseball ensured that he did. And once they got what they needed from McGuire and Barry Bonds, they said, get the hell out of here. We had a 
enough of you. And now we're going to blame you for tarnishing our sport. It's complete crap. There were no rules in place that prevented players from doing any of these things. And then on top of it, the fact is people don't understand what steroids do. Steroids, sure, they make you stronger, Mm -hmm. right? But being stronger does not mean you're going to hit home runs. What it does is just allow you to be at 100% for a longer period of your season. Mm -hmm. So Mark McGuire was out there hitting 70 home runs, not because he was all of a sudden this massive dude and could swing the bat a million miles an hour. He's had stretches in his career long before that when he was skinny McGuire. His rookie season had 15 home runs. Yeah. Barry Bonds had stretches where he had numbers just like he did in 01, 03, 02, 03, 04. But all of a sudden, those stretches become the duration of the season because they have the endurance to do it for 162 games. And the last thing I got to say about steroids, it drives me nuts because fans are so ignorant as to what steroids do. They think you take steroids, you're automatically hitting home runs. Or if you're hitting home runs, you're automatically taking steroids. Guess what? Here's your clip for the show. I took steroids. I hit zero home runs. I still (laughs) sucked at baseball. I couldn't hit a ball 350 feet, let alone 550, all right? It didn't do anything for me other than give me a massive bench press. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) One more question for me. Uh, By the way, before I get to that, you mentioned you were a Marine. I'll salute your service. uh, Thank you. As a Marine. Um, So a couple questions ago, you were mentioning how a lot of these closers were kind of overrated getting into the Hall of Fame type thing. I actually, a couple of years ago, I had a theory, the way analytics were going, that the pure closer will die out in five to seven years with the analytics where they're putting best relief pitchers in different parts of the game. Where do you stand on that? potential. I think it's already happening. And I think you were ahead of the curve on that one. You know what? You should make fun of BBWA just like <laughs> I do, because they always seem to know what's happening. You got to listen to our show. Man, and yet because... they're always wrong. It's amazing yeah. to me. It's just, just this group, the old boys club, BBWA. It drives me nuts. I'll have to send you guys some of the emails that I've sent these people about why I should be in because I qualify based on their very rules. Last year, I think I contributed to 18 of 30 team broadcasts, <laughs> which is exactly Exactly something that gives you the right to be a member of BBWA. I was credentialed by, I think, eight different teams to go to games as a media member. But uh, now, clearly, I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about this. But I really think you're exactly right. We see some of the best relievers coming in. I think the first time we really saw this was, I want to say, the 2017 postseason, where you're seeing teams' best relievers coming into the fourth inning, and it's in the postseason. Why is this? Well, this is because when the games matter the most. So logically, the only thing that's going to follow from there is that teams figure out, okay, if it works in the postseason where we're playing the best teams in the game, well, maybe this is a concept that we could apply throughout the entire season. I wouldn't even be surprised at all if in the future we see a team that tries to do something like you have no starters, you have three inning guys, and you throw a pitcher out there for three innings, then he's done. Another pitcher for three, he's done. Pitcher for the last three, he's done. And then it's their turn three days later, and you end up seeing a guy who gets over the course of 162 games 54 starts, but he only throws 162 innings because he's only throwing three innings Mm. per. I wouldn't at all be surprised that that's something we see as baseball people become smarter and smarter about the game. Just so you know, we talk about all the commissioners in professional sports on this show. We don't care who's listening or what anybody is saying. They can hate us. We throw everybody under the bus if we have to because we are honest and we don't hold back. Everything that we say is straightforward from our hearts and what we think. Just because, hey, you know what? People don't like us or people disagree with us. We're going to spit out 
not what we believe in. I've said it all along. Rob Manfred is the worst commissioner in professional sports. The guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing. What they're doing to Pete Rose is a catastrophe. It's just stupid. People bet on sports now. It's legalized here in New York. But, hey, you know what? If Derek Jeter's doing that now, now that he's retired, it doesn't matter. Because he was a coach or a manager in the league and he was betting against the team that they were beating, that's why he's not in the hole. It doesn't make sense. And then there are guys like David Ortiz that's in the Hall of Fame when he admitted to doing steroids. It's ridiculous. He's a first ballot Hall of Fame when Barry Bonds is a way better player than he ever would ever think to be. And Barry Bonds is never going to go into the Hall of Fame. And he is arguably the greatest baseball player to ever play this game. So it doesn't make sense. Rob Manfred's a moron. Bud Selig should be buried in the ground right now, the old bag. Go sell another damn car over there in Cincinnati, wherever the hell you're from, you moron. By the way, why isn't George Stein Brenner in the Hall of Fame? I wonder. Is it hatred for the Yankees? Or is it just hatred that he was suspended from baseball for two years because of what he did? And by the way, he changed baseball. He made baseball for what it is today. So, kiss my ass. How's that sound? I'm all about it. You guys are going to have to have me back because I love this passion and this trashing of, or thrashing, <laughs> I'll even say, of Robert D. Manfred, yeah. who I also am not a huge fan of. The thing that I'm most pissed about Manfred, that 2020 postseason that they had with the different playoff format, that was mine. They freaking stole it word for word from me. Wow. And then I get no credit at all. And then they're going to blacklist me from MLB Network and stuff. I'm not allowed to do that stuff anymore. And these the writers aren't allowed to credit me or talk to me or anything. Let them, Screw you. It's not, it's not even worth it. This is the problem with professional sports. Whenever they have something to say, they'll throw you under the bus. And when they have nothing to say about you, they'll find a story to say something about you. That's what professional sports is. It's an oxymorific, stupid organization. All of them. NFL, NBA, NHL. They're all Gary Bettman, idiot. Bud Selig, idiot. Roger, Roger Goodell, Goodell, idiot. Adam Silver lets LeBron James run the freaking league, idiot. They're all idiots. LeBron James is the biggest hypocrite in the world. He All he does is preach about equality and stuff here in the U.S. The man literally has Chinese slaves. I'm sorry. He literally owns Chinese slaves. I believe it. And I say literally, in the literal sense of the word. And he says nothing about it and never addresses any of that. And it's just is maddening to me. Screw LeBron James. Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time. I know you said earlier, he is. Nah, Jordan's the best. <laughs> uh, Jordan's the greatest athlete I've ever seen play professional sports. That's coming from Wayne Gretzky, Muhammad Ali. I don't even think he's the greatest boxer I've ever seen. Mike Tyson's the best. Mike Tyson's the greatest knockout boxer I've ever seen. I think the greatest boxer I've ever seen at the top of his game, I would say Sugar Ray Leonard was the best I've seen, like with my own eyes. But Oscar Robinson. Joe Frazier. There were so many good fighters. They don't get any credit because we never got a chance to see them. Anyways, we are talking to co-author Incredible Baseball Stats, Ryan Spader. Ryan, we really appreciate you joining us. We definitely want to get you on again. You can come on whenever you want and bash baseball. It doesn't matter to us. We're hoping you overtake all the Hall of Fame writers at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we write I a book? I appreciate it, guys. Why don't we write a book about that? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Get I those old guys it. out I'll of the... definitely get, jump back on soon. I hope so. Get the old guys out of the Baseball of Hall of Fame voting. <laughs> we need you on that panel. Next time we jump on, we'll have to grab a beer together. We'll really get it going then. Oh, absolutely. We really appreciate all the time that you gave us tonight. and We'll get you on. Speedy will reach out out to you and we'll be communicating with you we really appreciate everything take it easy guys you have a great night thanks Absolutely. again you too.
Ryan Spader, ladies and gentlemen. And yes, baseball. Yes, he hates Rob Manfred, as well as we do. So there you go. Not only one, but two. And I would agree with him 110% about the steroid situation. Absolutely love it. Baseball players, steroids, no steroids. It can't make them see the ball better. You heard what he said. He did steroids, and it didn't make him hit home runs either. <laughs> yeah, so, he said it pretty proudly. Forget the asterisk. <laughs> Ryan Spader, hopefully we get him on again. He loved coming on with us, and we were very happy to have him on. So thank you, Ryan, for joining in. Maybe if I beat him, we'll have to have more than 13 beers. <laughs> there you go. And he already said he wants to sit down and drink. Yeah. You could drink the beers. I don't drink. Yeah, he can, too. <laughs> Anyways, when we come back, ladies and gentlemen, we will get into more baseball. Yes, as the Yankees, dominant as they are, dominating the American League and the New New York Mets have a lot of problems, injury problems on the slopes. Been saying this for a while. Max Scherzer could be out six to eight weeks. What does this do to the Mets rotation? When we come back, I'll tell you why it is not over for the New York Mets. Here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks, my co-host, Speedy. Petey, remember to listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, which is Apple, WWSRN, or Android Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Well, 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 ladies and gentlemen, I can't say anything bad about this New York Yankee team. There's really nothing I could say that could obviously hurt what every Yankee fan has done to Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone in the offseason. How many people, how many Yankee fans wanted Brian Cashman's head because they couldn't land Max Scherzer? And we'll get into Max Scherzer in just a few moments. How many people said that Aaron Boone is the worst manager in Yankee baseball history. If you want to look at stats right now, if Aaron Boone wins another 100 games this year, he will be the first manager in baseball history in his first five years to have not one, not two, but three 100-win seasons. So what do I say about that? What do Yankee fans have to say about that? Aaron Boone and the New York Yankees did not spend all that money in the offseason. They made trades after the lockout where they didn't have to open up their pockets and bring in free agents. They didn't go after a big-time pitcher. They kept to the rotation that they had last year, which it was a little bit more healthier this year. Bringing back a healthy Luis Savarino. Nestor Cortez, who has really shown everybody what a player can develop into at the age of 27. Teon, who has really changed ever since the second half of the season last year and has become a dominant force for the New York Yankees as a fifth starter in this rotation. And Jordan Montgomery, ever since he came back from his ACL injury, has gotten better and better and better. And now you look at the Yankees right now, Speedy. They have the best rotation in baseball right now. They have the best bullpen in baseball right now. They're the third best defensive team in baseball. And they lead the league in home runs In all of baseball. So what does that say about Brian Cashman, Speedy? What does that say about Aaron Boone, Speedy? Aaron Boone has done the best managerial job getting depth, getting new players to get going, and not having these guys rely on one player a lot of the time. I've always said Aaron Boone has been a better manager when the adversity is being faced. 
2019 season with all those injuries. All these players coming through for them. He found the right line. By the way, baseball absolutely robbed him for that manager of the year. Well, he should have been manager not of the only, year. Not only that, the fourth manager of the year won the manager of the year in Rocco Galdelli. There nope. were two other even more deserving guys, too. Mm-hmm. And the fourth guy somehow won it, but that's besides the point. But Aaron Boone this year has done a great job managing so many different lineups playing the bench players the best they could do. Between the infield, we talk about the depth of Kiner Falefa, Glaber Torres, LeMahieu, managing that right, the catchers, managing that very well, and most of all, the pitching. The Yankees always had the big-name bullpen in the past, where they had the seventh guy, juggernaut, eighth guy, Britain, juggernaut, ninth guy, Chapman, juggernauts. Now it's different. Araldis Chapman is still closing. He's done a nice job this year. Had his first really bad outing this week, but still has had a great year overall. But now it's these new names. Michael King, Clay Holmes, Miguel Castro, ex-Met. These young pitchers that have done well throughout this bullpen that aren't these big-name guys, aren't getting paid a lot of money. A lot of them are failed starters. A lot of them have failed with other teams. Like you're saying with Nestor Cortez, he's had two different stints with the Yankees, now finally getting going at age 27. He's allowed only six earned runs this entire season, and only allowed three home runs. 49 strikeouts. That's insane. Their worst ERA is Luis Severino at 3.63 in their starting rotation. Tyone, 3.28. Montgomery, 3.35. That is insane. Garrett Cole's back to his usual self. That's a lot to do with Aaron Boone and a lot to do with Brian Cashman in the faith that they had in not going after extra veteran guys and trying to hinder themselves with bad contracts like they did in the past. Well, I will say this. What we have seen so far from the New York Yankees is a team that is not one player deep. This is a team that has played well on all cylinders. It's not all about the offense. It's not all about the power anymore. It's not all about Garrett Cole. This team has a rotation. This team has a bullpen. And what Brian Cashman has done in the offseason, bringing up these players like King and Schmidt, it's really changed the bullpen from one of the worst bullpens in baseball last year to now the best bullpen in baseball. So it's a miraculous move by a GM that doesn't get the respect from Yankee fans that he should. And to me, he is going to be GM of the year if the Yankees continue doing what they're doing. And Brian Cashman, who everybody wanted out of there, could sit here on his throne, and I've said this over and over and over again. If Brian Cashman was ever fired by the New York Yankees, there would be 31 teams lining up, ready to sign him within five minutes. So for anybody, any Yankee fan that is disgusted with arguably the best GM in baseball, one of the best GMs in professional sports, Well, then you don't know baseball, and you should just shut your mouths. Because this man deserves all the damn respect for what he has done the last 25 years for this New York Yankee organization. This was the one and last gift George Steinbrenner has given the New York Yankees as an organization. So thank you to George Steinbrenner to give us a GM that actually knows what he is doing. What defines a GM is not necessarily star moves. What defines them is bargains and defines them as trades that you fleece other teams in. And the Yankees have done a collection of that with a lot of these players. Not all these players are homegrown. Some of them are, but some of them are top prospects of other teams that didn't get it going. Tyone was a second overall pick of the draft with the Pirates, was a very good young pitcher, then had some trouble with Tommy John surgery, had to step away from the game because he had cancer, which he's a fighter for that as well. And a lot of these other pitchers too. Miguel Castro was just with the Mets. Wandy Peralta was a good pitcher for Houston, Detroit. Now 
finding a role in this Yankees bullpen. 1.38 RA. Same thing I think with the hitters. Aaron Hicks, how good of a prospect was he with the Twins? Couldn't get it going. How about Nestor Cortez? Look at him right now. He's up for a Cy Young this year. Uh-huh. I mean, who would have thought that by Nestor Cortez? Last year, in the second half of the season, he was unbelievable. And now... This full season so far, he's 2-1, and one, and his ERA is 1.35, and his whip is under 1. Right now, those are Jacob deGrom-esque type of numbers, right. and that's Cy Young numbers for a guy like Nestor Cortez, and a guy that might really have changed who he is as a pitcher. Yeah. So the Yankees might have found something nobody saw when Baltimore drafted him. Seven, eight years ago. To put it in perspective, Jacob deGrom's historically good first half last year was 1.08 ERA. Nestor Cortez is only 27 one hundredths of a point ERA behind that. It's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. And congratulations to the New York Yankees. Keep playing the way they're doing. They're going to be very untouchable in this American League, which is still... A very good American League. Minnesota, they've played very well. No thanks to Gary Sanchez. And then there's Houston. And I have to give them a lot of credit. Dusty Baker, a lot of credit. Because this Houston Astros team that's lost so many pieces over the last couple of years is still playing at the top of their game. Maybe because of their farm system. But really, this lineup is hitting on all different cylinders. It's, mm-hmm. it's unbelievable what this Houston Astros team has done so far in the American League. As far as the New York Mets, I know there's not a lot of bad things to say about the Mets. I mean, they're 26-14. and 14. They're getting game Winning hits by the polar bear. Lindor is hitting. Everybody's hitting in his lineup. What would worry the New York Mets fan moving forward is their starting rotation. Who would have thought the dominant force of what this team was supposed to be before the season start is now the weakest part of this team? You talk about, obviously, Jacob deGrom, who might not be back until mid-June, end of June. Two days ago, 48 hours ago, there was a story coming out that Max Scherzer could be out for six to eight weeks for a lat sprain. Now, we've seen this lat sprain before. If you guys remember, for the last two years, Noah Syndergaard has had this problem. Three times. What does that tell you about Max Scherzer, who has never had a significant injury like this ever in his career? And now he goes to the New York Mets, and he could be out six to eight weeks. So you look at this rotation now. What do you see? Bassett? McGill? He's hurt, too. He doesn't have an injury like this. No. But you have Bassett, McGill, Carrasco. Who else? Walker? <laughs> yeah, if he actually pitches. This rotation is came from one of the best or the best rotation in baseball with the leadoffs of Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer to now maybe a subpar rotation at best in the National League. If you're a Met fan right now, you better hope that this lineup stays as hot as it's been since the starting of the season. Because if it doesn't, this team could go down as quick as they have over the last couple of years in the month of June. There are two things that are going to be tested here. One of which, which the Mets have never seen to do, no matter if their pitchers are young, whether their pitchers are older, whatever, is if they manage the injury properly. Because Noah Syndergaard, like you brought up, had three different lat problems that they always seem to rush him back from. And then when the finally the last one went, it seemed like he didn't pitch for a year in 2019 on after he injured that yep. during the shortened season. Now he's gone. Now he's with the Angels. They did it with Steven Matz, too. All the big injuries that he had. Zach Wheeler. They pitched well in certain spurts for the Mets, but never were able to put it together. Now you have a guy who's old, 38 years old, Max Scherzer. And you're going to have to manage that a lot differently. Yes, he's had great durability throughout his career, but he's still 38 years old. So you cannot have this be a big problem where he's out in meaningful games in August and September because you rushed him back after 
six weeks. You rushed him back after four weeks, whatever it may be. Jacob deGrom, same kind of thing. He hasn't pitched since the end of the first half of last year. So there's got to be some kind of issue there that you're going to have to not rush him back. They're right now in okay shape, but now that McGill's hurt too, they're going to have to manage it with this kind of average starting rotation. Now, if McGill comes back strong and pitches like he did in the first month of the season, that's going to change a lot. Bass has pitched well. Carrasco's pitched well, but he's going to hit a bit of a slump. The other thing that's going to be tested is length, because Carrasco's really been the only length guy so far for them this season, and even he's not normally known as that. So how much can you expect that to last? So Buck Schultz going to have to do a good job at managing that and not overworking particular bullpen arms as well, because they might need to go to openers. They might need to go to some veteran guys that you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. If you're a Met fan right now, I wouldn't be as excited as you should be. But again, it's still very, very early, and I understand where the Mets are right now with this rotation. You would sit back and wonder if this rotation is going to be able to hold up throughout the season. I believe they will. I believe they'll get back to full strength, and when they do, I think they're going to be pretty dominant. Right. you got to remember, it's not terrible. It's just average, but it's serviceable. They just have too many guys that are just so inconsistent. you got to wake up, especially you, Taiwan Walker. We're looking at you. When we come back, we'll get into some football as we'll get into the Jets and what the Jets are going to be doing as OTAs are about to begin very, very soon and what the Giants need to do as they're hip and Fantastic-looking coach in Daba with his Michael Jordan jumpsuits and jump sneakers is looking favorable for the New York Giant fan. When we come back, we'll get into the New York Giants and the New York Jets here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. A little M&M. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only. On 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android, World Wide Sports Radio Network. Anyways, it's time for football. That's right. I'm just kidding. It is time for football, and I know a lot of Jet fans are sitting here today, and they're, they're so excited that the season is just around the corner. And maybe it was because of the great draft, adding guys like Johnson and Wilson, and not Zach Wilson, I'm talking about Garrett Wilson, or Sauce Gardner, or Brees Hall, or Clemens, or Mitchell. I don't know. What surprises you more about this regime? Is it Robert Sala's second year with a better defense, with a more mobile defense at the edges, with a Carl Lawson and now a Jermaine Johnson. Or maybe is the secondary now with Reed and Gardner and obviously Bryce Hall. Or maybe it's the running back core that they have now with Brees Hall and Michael Carter Jr. To me, when you look at this Jets team, it's all about the trenches. It's all about this offensive line and how they work together. And it's going to be very important for this defensive line to put pressure on quarterbacks, especially in the AFC, where they're loaded when it comes to star quarterbacks. And they're loaded when it comes to mobility with a lot of the young quarterbacks that they're going to have to play against, too. Not even just in the AFC East, but you have Josh Allen, then you got Lamar Jackson, you got Joe Burrow, you got guys that are mobile, too. So they got speed off the edges in order to deal with that. And 
with the secondary depth they have now, too, they could try to use those guys in run-type defense roles, too. Extra safeties, extra corners. We saw the Chargers do that in a playoff game against the Ravens in order to contain Lamar Jackson. And the Jets, with the secondary depth they have now, have the ability to do that kind of thing, too, especially with the speed they have off the edges. The linebackers will see if they have the same kind of effect. C.J. Mosley's not as fast as he used to be, but still pretty fast. And there's also some rumors of Kawan Alexander, too. So if they could bring him in, that would be really something as well. One of the best tackling fast linebackers in the league and can cover a little, too. Absolutely, and I think that's the weakest part of the Jets' defense is yeah. their linebacking core. Now, obviously, they brought Quincy Williams in, Quentin Williams' brother, who played very well last year. C.J. Mosley had a fantastic year. So I think that when you look at the Jets right now, the question is, what is this offense going to be under Zach Wilson? Now you have Corey Davis. You have Elijah Moore. Now you have Garrett Wilson. You have star-ass running backs like Brees Hall or Michael Carter. That's what you want to see. You want to see a significant powerhouse offensive team that we have not seen this Jets team be, even in the Rex Ryan years. So, Speedy, you look at this team and you look at the dynamics of it. And you you look at Mike LaFleur and you look at Robert Sala. What stands out to you, as exciting as the Jets' offseason has been, what stands out to you from all the acquisitions they made? The ability to do multiple types of game plans now. They don't have to be just one type of team. They don't have to rely on just Zach Wilson running because they had all those running backs injured last year. They don't have to be just a three-receiver set team or when they weren't a three-receiver set team with all the injuries against the Buccaneers and when they had the COVID issues in the middle of the season. They could rely now on tight ends. They didn't have to rely on scrap heap Ryan Griffin and Chris Herndon and guys of years past. They got legitimate tight ends to do that kind of thing too. We saw Mike LaFleur's off offense in San Francisco revolve around a lot around the two tight ends. Now, granted, they have George Kittle, and the Jets might not have a George Kittle on the roster, but even when Kittle was hurt, they still used other different tight ends. They brought in Jordan Reed one year, Ross Dwelly. They had other guys that worked, but they also could be a wide receiver type team, too. They could play the Sean McVay type offense, which was where LaFleur originally learned from. They could use the bunch formations they like to do with Garrett Wilson now. Hopefully, Corey Davis plays a little better than he did last year, but still, again, second year of a system, might have had trouble getting used to it. Elijah Moore could play all over the place. So there's a lot of options to just not have to play just one type of offense. And that is the new wave of today's game. Keep them thinking, have different types of players. The Jets aren't just one team of all small receivers or all small running backs. They have size. They have speed. They have versatility. A good combination of everything now. If the play calling is creative enough and not like what Michael Fleur did in the first half of last season. And that's going to be up to him and up to these position coaches to get the best out of those players as well. Absolutely. And that's why going into the season do I think the Jets are going to be a a contending Super Bowl team? No. I think they're one year away. You want to see growth of Zach Wilson. You want to see Zach Wilson take that next step and he obviously put on some muscle in the offseason. That's good news because he looked like a, a stick going into the season last year. Might lose a little bit of speed, but strong arm and a guy that's mobile that can move inside and out of the pocket as good as he can. I'm very interested to see what Zach Wilson is going to be moving forward this year, as accurate as he was in the second half right. of the season. As far as the Giants are concerned, I know a lot of people are questioning some of the moves that they made at the draft. They had a great first round. They added Kavon Thibodeau, who fits very well with the New York Giants. Evan Neal, who is arguably the best offensive tackle in this year's draft, before we heard some of the knee problems that he had throughout the last couple of seasons. But nevertheless, the second half of their draft was not very good. But you know what's really exciting, if you are a Giant fan right now, is their head coach. And I'll tell you this right now, 
When you look at a head coach, you want to see a head coach that has swag. You look at Robert Sala. He has swag. He works out with the players. He's always in there at 5 o'clock in the morning lifting with the players. What I love about this guy, Dable, I love that the way he dresses. He wears his Jordan suits. He wears his Jordan sneakers. He goes out there. He has some kind of swag to him. And, and that's good for the Giants because they haven't had swag in a very long time. The last time they had swag was with an angry Tom Coughlin. And that wasn't swag. That was just an anger amongst the team and individuals. It's also still the most energy you'll ever see out of an old man ever. (laughs) Absolutely. So when you look at this team, you look at the Giants as a whole, trying to figure this team out, you can really figure out this team through their coaching. They have Wink, and I call him Mr. Wink because of what he did with the Baltimore uh, Ravens. Now you're bringing in a guy that actually knows defensive patterns. He understands the way to play defense. He's one of the best defensive minds in the NFL. And then you bring in a guy like Dable, who is very well respected around the league, helped Josh Allen become the quarterback that he is, and maybe can help and solidify a quarterback that's been there for a couple of years that really hasn't defined himself as a quarterback in the NFL, Speedy. Yeah, you wonder, too, what kind of concepts that he'll bring because Josh Allen and Daniel Jones, when it comes to the mobility factor, are very similar. Now, Daniel Jones isn't the big body like Josh Allen is where he's going to be that difficult to take down, but Daniel Jones has rushed very well in certain games. He's been elusive at escaping pressure, and he had to really be tested on that. The first three years of his career, the Giants have had all terrible offensive lines, and that included Andrew Thomas in the first half of his rookie season when he couldn't prosper for anything. So Daniel Jones mentally will have to see how he could grow in that and the concept. I think now they could use him more in rollout type things. They have not the receiving depth, but they have the play caller that will actually spread guys out and not do these basic formations like you saw Jason Garrett do and previous offensive coordinators that Daniel Jones has had where it seems like very old school. The Bills, yeah, they don't have the greatest arsenal of like receiving depth like a team like the Rams does or anything like that, but you saw Buffalo utilize concepts with guys like Isaiah McKenzie, who were considered a gadget player punt returner. Maybe the Giants can get the best out of Kadarius Toney in using him in that kind of role. The second round pick in Wandale Robinson, I didn't like it, but they might use him in that type of thing too. The Giants are going to have to make that kind of thing work because they don't have the star power of that offense. They have to trust the scheme to make a leap this year and trust the star power they have on the defense. They still have some left. I know they cut James Bradbury, who naturally signs with the Eagles, like every other NFC East player loves to do. Just go to another team. Why not? But the offense is the, where the coaching specialty is. And if Dable could get the best out of that, well, from a, both from play calling and a culture perspective, the Giants offense, it's not going to be great, but it's at least going to be serviceable where it could score some points. I think the Giants are going to be fun to watch this year, especially with the schedule the way it is. This is a winnable schedule for the New York Giants. Now, I don't know if they're going to win 10 games or 11 games. No. But they could be a borderline playoff team, especially as weak as the NFC East is going to be this year. The Eagles look like they're the best team in that division. On paper, they stand out. Adding a big-time receiver as they did at the draft and then adding some of the defensive players they added in the draft this year, they're really going to stand out. But I think the Giants, even with the Cowboys and the Washington Commanders are in that division, I think the Giants could really compete with those teams. The Cowboys have lost a lot of significant players in the offseason. And Washington, even though they added a quarterback, Carson Wentz, They're a team that really is trying to figure out their identity. So I I think the Giants know who they are, and I think Dable, with the weapons that they're going to bring to the table and and who they are as an organization and a team, it's going to be very interesting to see what Dable is going to command at the quarterback position and what he's going to demand when it comes to that offensive line with now the lead anchors of Evan Neal and obviously Thomas. I think that could solidify the offense and where the offense is going, especially the running game and the wide receiving core that they're going to be bringing and putting on the field. Whenever you have a mobile quarterback and want to be able to utilize rollout concepts, 
concepts, designed bootlegs, designed play action type concepts. You need two tackles that could do that. The best way to contain an outside rushing quarterback, except for Russell Wilson, for whatever reason, struggles more against interior. But beyond that, you need outside rushing guys that, that can rush the passer. Now, if you have two tackles that are as good as Thomas and what Neil could be, then you're going to have that kind of thing where Daniel Jones isn't going to be running for his life and then takes all these bad sacks, these 15-yard sacks, and then fumbles a lot. That's always been the biggest problem in his career so far, has been sensing pressure on his own. Now, some of that has sim, some of it it's the offensive line. Most of it, I would say, is the offensive line. But at least if they can reduce that with that kind of thing with these two tackles, if they develop the way they should, it's going to improve a lot. As far as the division, I would say talent-wise, they're still last. But again, if the coaching is there right away, where Dable is that new school coach over some old school coaches that Ron Rivera and Mike McCarthy maybe haven't brought right away to their respective teams, they could be the second team in that division if that's the case. I think Washington probably still, I would favor them as the second team because, yes, Dallas did lose a lot. But Carson Wentz is always hurt. Their offense is still very questionable, too, like the Giants. So that's going to be the battle there. But if Dable brings that new school mentality and get them going right away, even if they don't win enough games to make the playoffs, at least to get second in the division, that could definitely be a big leap. It's still going to be hard for make the playoffs with the South still having some good teams with the Saints improving the way they did. Panthers, we'll see on them. They're not a great offense, but they still have a good overall roster. And the West, too, we know is loaded, too. Assuming that the 49ers and Cardinals resolve their offensive situations, they're still going to be dangerous teams as well. I think both teams are going to be very intriguing this year in the positions that they're in in their divisions. In the AFC East, you obviously look at Miami. That has gotten better with Tyreek Hill. They don't have a quarterback. I'm sorry. Tua is not the quarterback of the future for that organization. I believe they'll be looking for a new quarterback next year. Josh Allen and what he's done with Buffalo, they're losing Dable. Losing Dable is a significant loss. I really do believe we're going to see the growth of Josh Allen as a player that we didn't see last year now that Dable is gone. And then, obviously, the new England Patriots that are very, very dangerous, as they always are, with Mac Jones, a second year, and obviously Bill Belichick and the weapons that they have. They added Parker in the offseason and some of the running backs that they added in the drafts. So it's going to be very interesting to see where this AFC East is going to fall. Are the Jets the second best team in this division? I would say not. I would say the Jets could be the third best team in this division Mm -hmm. this year. I think they're a year away from being that dominant force where everybody's going to be afraid to play in the Jets. But I think they're going to make a lot of noise this year if Zach Wilson really takes that next step. Same thing with the Giants. I think Daniel Jones is the guy. I think Daniel Jones needs to prove himself, and I think that's why they brought Dable in, because he fixed Josh Allen. Maybe he fixed Daniel Jones for the better. When we come back, ladies and gentlemen, Speedy, what do we got? Crunch time! Here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks. My co-host, Mr. Glasses Man, Speedy Pete. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time Only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine of the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Download the World Wide Sports Radio app by going to iOS, WWSRN, or Android World Wide Sports Radio Network. Anyways, it's been a great show. I'd like to thank the incredible Ryan Spader for joining us. We did not have our boys on the show, the great and powerful Sports Betting Weekly, or we call it Moneyline Mania. Chaz is getting better. Uh, Shout out to Chaz, getting better from COVID. They will be possibly back by next week. We have one more show, and then we're going on hiatus for a week. And we'll be back after that because me and Speedy are going on a week vacation. Speedy's going to Maine. I'm going to Florida. We want to apologize to the fans, but it'll be the first 
first show since we started here at mm -hmm. 103.9 where we are not going to have a show every single week. So it's just one week. So all the fans, I know they can't wait to hear us. You'll miss us for a week, and we'll be back the week after. Speedy, you ready? Yep. It is time for Crunch Time. It's time for Crunch Time. It's raining, man. Yeah. Hallelujah. That's your song, Speedy. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, not even close. I would hope it's not raiding men, but that's beyond the point. All right, we'll start with the New York Islanders. Dogs. hope that's not the case either, because then cats. they'd be dead. Well, raining cats and dogs. Or raining frogs. How about octopuses? Octopi. Whatever. <laughs> All right. By herself, we'll start with the new New York Islanders head coach. With Lane Lambert now as a head coach, we'll see what they do in the offseason. But as of what we know right now, by herself, they will be a top three team in the Metro with him as coach. I believe they will. I think what we've seen this year is a team that didn't have any home games in the first month. Uh, 11,000 miles traveling. It definitely puts pressure and puts a lot of tense on the team early in the season. I think this team is going to be back. This full squad might be fully back next year. Maybe additional, maybe one or two players, and maybe a goal scorer to play with Barzell, something they've been craving. And I think they're going to keep this same defensive prowess that they had with Barry Trotz, being that they have one of Barry Trotz's disciples. So I absolutely believe they could be a top three, top four team in the Eastern Conference next year. Yeah, I'm going to buy it too. I don't think there's an obvious second one in the Metro. I think Washington's getting older. They could drop off next year. The Penguins, they might trade Malkin in the offseason and who knows what else they could do. So I don't really see as an obvious second team. The Blue Jackets might bounce back. The Devils could rise, but it's not definitive what they could do. The Hurricanes, I think, will be fine in the Rangers, but that's really it in terms of success. But I think the Islanders could definitely be top three. I will buy it as well. All right, buy or sell. The Celtics Heat Series will go seven games. I'm going to buy it. I think both teams are dominant forces defensively. The question is who's the better offensive team? They've been back and forth, back-to-back -back games. One's been better than the other. I think this is going to keep going in this series. The question is who is the better overall team? Is it the Celtics or is it Miami? I think Miami has the more depth, especially coming off the bench offensively, and they shoot better at the three-point line. But I think it will go seven games. I'm going to sell it. I have Heat and six. I'm going to stick with that for the time being. I think the Celtics will get that game six home game and then get the pressure on them at that point. It's a hostile crowd in Boston. I think Miami, I think they have a much looser crowd. They'll be able to win better in that. And I do think the depth of Miami will start to play better at a certain point, especially Duncan Robinson, who's gotten very limited minutes so far this postseason. And we could see Kyle Lowry back in this series as well when he's back from his injury too so I will sell it alright buy or sell we won't see Max Scherzer or Jacob DeGrom until after the All-Star break I'm going to buy it I think the Mets are going to try to protect their pitchers that would be the smart thing to do and Steve Cohen isn't the Will Ponds and with this new regime I think they've been a little bit better and smarter at protecting their players, even though it's been very early in the season. I don't believe you're going to see Jacob DeGrom or Max Scherzer until the All-Star break. I'm going to sell it. I think one of them at least will come back until then. I, I can't see the Mets keeping up this pace steadily enough where they can trust it. Why not? Think the Yankees did it with their lineup. The Yankees have done it so far, but the Yankees have done it well for years in terms of managing injuries. The Mets really haven't done that kind of thing yet. Plus, I don't think the Braves will be this bad forever. The Phillies, they're what they are. They'll still be competitive. I think the Mets will have some kind of slump at some point where I think it'll get too close where they're going to bring one of them back. Not both of them. I think one of them will sit Phillies out. Phillies are going to be saying bye-bye Joe soon. Well, yeah. Bye-bye uh, Gerardo. I, I'm not convinced anybody can manage that team. Listen to what Ryan said about Gabe Kapler. I thought he was the worst manager in baseball with the Phillies. Now one of the best with the Giants. And it just proves that maybe the Phillies are just like that messed up. But nevertheless, I am going to sell it. Well, he told you why. I know. 
He told you why I, Kapler wasn't good over there with the Philadelphia mm-hmm, Absolutely. But it just seems like good managers could come there and go do well other places, or in Girardi's case, do well not there. So, nevertheless, I'm going to sell the Mets. All right, let's go to the Nick Saban-Jimbo Fisher feud that they're having. Buy or sell, both Alabama and Texas A&M will both make the college football playoffs with their bought recruiting classes in the next two seasons. Next two seasons, I'm going to buy it. I think both teams are very well uh, money-logged over there with the collegiate sports. Both teams and both programs are spending a lot of money to bring these players into their program. So I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it, too. I think Jimbo Fisher hasn't been a great coach with Texas A&M, but he's had his spurts. He's had his moments. was the first team out in the shortened season, and I do think now with a better recruiting class and much more respectability with the program and with some other teams falling off in the SEC West, I think you'll definitely see one year of that. Obviously, Alabama will make it once in the next two years. I think that's inevitable, so I am going to buy it as well. All right, buy or sell. We will see another six-plus goal performance from either the Oilers or the Flames this series. I'm going to sell it. I think that was uh, sensational. Seeing 15 goals scored in a game, I don't think you're going to see it again in this series. I think both goaltenders can't be that bad, so I'm going to sell it. I'm going to buy it. I'm not going to think you're going to say it from both teams in the same game, but I think you definitely could see it from one. The Oilers' goaltending is terrible. I definitely think the Flames will score six goals at least one more time. Buy or sell? The Warriors will either sweep the Mavericks or win in five. I think both are wrong. I think this could go six or seven games. I really do. I think the Mavericks can give them a challenge. You can't bet against Luka Doncic. I think Luka Doncic has proven to you why he is one of the best players and one of the best offensive talents in the NBA. So I am going to sell both of them. I'm going to sell it too. I actually picked Dallas at the start. I'm going to stick with it. We saw what they did against Phoenix bouncing back after down 2 nothing. Game 1 was just a letdown game. They had that big emotional win, blowout against Phoenix like nobody expected and they just had a letdown. I think they'll bounce back. I still will pick them to win this series. I am going to sell it. Buy or sell. Juan Soto will be traded this season. I'm going to sell it. It's not going to happen this season. Season. It could happen next season. All questions lie on the Nationals and their management over there. And do they think they can get enough right now for Juan Soto? And the answer is no. I'm going to sell it. Yeah, I'm going to sell it. So Mike Rizzo is not one that I've always trusted. Made a lot of weird moves in his tenure with the Nationals. Some of them have worked. Some of them haven't. I just think it's going to be a very hefty price that even some of these teams that are rumored right now, the Blue Jays, the Padres, they're going to run out of players eventually or not want to give up core that's already on their roster. So I am going to sell it as well. All right, we'll do an NFL one. Two out of three of these guys, Terry McLaurin, DK Metcalf, or Debo Samuel, will still be traded before the season starts. I'm going to sell it. I don't think any of them are going to be traded. I think it's going to take a little while as the season progresses. You can get more in the middle of the season when you need a type of player like that to fill in maybe an injury spot or something like that. So I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell it too. I think Terry McLaurin could get traded. I don't, he could, but I, I don't think he will. I don't think the other two will. I think DK Metcalf, Seattle should trade him, but I don't think they will. I think they're going to be very stingy with that. And I think the 49ers at this point, they're going to give Debo Samuel the money that he wants. John Lynch loves to spend money. I think it was just a matter of the contract, whether he wants to be paid as a running back or a receiver. So I am going if to McLaurin sell If McLaurin was going to be traded, he would have been traded already. So I believe he'll start the season on Washington. Buy or sell. The Rangers will lose in no worse than six games against the Hurricanes. I'm going to sell it. I know I'm not a Ranger fan. I know Ranger fans are going to say, well, you hate them. No, I just don't think they are anywhere as good as the Carolina Hurricanes right now. The way Carolina plays defense, the goaltending they've gotten from Ronta so far in this series has been sensational. He's been one of the best goalies in the playoffs. So I am going to sell it. I'm going to buy it. I think six games was my pick initially. I'm going to stick with that. I think the Hurricanes had some trouble on the road, so I do think the Rangers will win some home games, and I do think Shesterkin will steal a game. Maybe they'll have the dilemma like the Penguins had with Ronta and when Frederick Anderson comes back as well, and they'll mess up one of those games too. Ronta will have one bad dud. All right, last one. The Lightning will sweep the Panthers or win their series in five games. I already have 2 nothing going home. Sell it. 
I don't think it's going to happen. I think Florida's too good. The fact that they're down 2-0 is not surprising to me. I think the confidence level of this team and the powerhouse that this Florida Panther team has been all season long, they'll figure things out. I don't think the Lightning are that much better than this Florida Panther team. They do have the pedigree. They have been here before. I think Florida will get out of this, and I think this series could go six or seven games. It's not over yet, so I'm going to sell it. I'm going to buy it. I think the Lightning will win one of their home games. I think the Panthers win game three, and then the Lightning, I think, coast after that. They'll win a home game. A quick series is definitely something beneficial for them. I think the Panthers' defense has really showed their issues in this series. Even though the second game was a low-scoring game, the Lightning had possessed the puck a lot in that game and got a lot of shots on goal. And Sergei Bobrovsky has had some weird, soft goals that he hasn't been known to let in the past. And Andre Vasilevsky, he had that issue in the Maple Leaf series, hasn't shown it yet in this series. So I think he's finally found his groove again. So I think they'll do it in five games. I will buy it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the show. I'd like to thank our very special guest, co-author of Incredible Baseball Stats, Ryan Spader. Go check out his books. Him and his partner are fantastic. You heard what he did. You heard what he said on this show. And follow him on Twitter. He's fantastic. He's great. Check him out. Shout out to Chaz. Hopefully it gets better. We'll have Moneyline Mania back next week. For all the fans that really salute us and listen to us every single week for Long Island and sports over here throughout the country, listen to us. Keep listening to us because we are the voices of sports here. Thank you to 103.9. Thank you to all the fans. Thank you to everybody that support us. And we will be back next week. Until then, this is Errol Marks and the great Tower Power Man himself, Mr. Glasses Man, Speedy Petey, saying goodnight. And we'll talk to you then. Good night, everybody.